Previously on Flying the Line, Alpa makes its first steps into the jet age, but not without costs. As disagreements over safety and crew complement, sow seeds of dissent. At the same time, the post-World War II period sees a surge in unemployed pilots. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book, Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 18, The Southern Airways Strike of 1960, Part One. Frank Hulse, president and founder of Southern Airways, wanted nothing to do with labor unions. As a hustling entrepreneur, Hulse had to tolerate labor unions because his various enterprises did a lot of work for the federal government. But whenever possible, he made life miserable for union members. In 1958, Hulse broke the mechanics union at Southern after a wildcat strike. In early 1959, the Southern Airways pilots figured they were in for trouble. Their ALPA contract was in negotiations, and they knew Hulse's destruction of the mechanics union had made an easy settlement unlikely. ALPA was now the last labor union on Frank Hulse's property. Seven years of a Republican administration in Washington had filled the Civil Aeronautics Board with economic conservatives who were sympathetic to Hulse's anti-union stance. There were also some disquieting rumors reaching the Southern Airways pilots that Hulse wanted them to strike since he thought his pilots were overpaid. Hulse had been known to mutter this thought and speculated publicly that in an open, free market, he could hire cheaper, qualified pilots. There seemed to be a lot of them around. Eastern Airlines had just furloughed 300 pilots and practically all airlines had long furlough lists. In the recession of 1959, some pessimists thought that the furloughs would be permanent. The airlines were encouraging their furloughed pilots to return to the military for extended tours, since a steady job flying for the military beat no job at all. In addition, there were still lots of World War II flyers left over men who had never managed to get an airline job. Many of them had been living hand-to-mouth as nomadic aviators, working for small operators in the Middle East and Latin America. Many of these pilots held current qualifications in the DC-3, the only planes Southern Airways flew. All in all, it looked like big trouble for Southern Airways pilots. Meanwhile, in Chicago, Clancy Sayan was worried about the situation at Southern Airways. By itself, it was just a small airline with only a few pilots. But Alpa's structure at the regional airlines, or feeders as they were called then, was always shaky. In a situation reminiscent of the National Airlines strike of 1948, if one of them succeeded in breaking Alpa, Sayan expected others would surely try. In fact, he had already picked up disquieting hints that the Regional Carriers Association would definitely provoke a strike at either Southern Airways or Trans-Texas, 
just to test Alba's mettle. Taking no chances, Sayan assigned Jim Pashkov, one of his best negotiators, to the Southern Airways case full-time in early 1959. The only other airline assigned a full-time staff negotiator was American Airlines. Obviously, more was at stake than just a small strike at a small airline employing a mere 140 pilots. Fortunately, for future regional airline pilots, the Southern Airways pilots stood firm against Frank Hulse's attempt to reduce them to second-class economic citizenship. For the airline piloting profession, it was a turning point. The fundamental issue at stake in 1960 was equal pay for equal work. Historically, one of ALPA's most persistent disagreements was with the small airlines, who argued that they couldn't afford to pay the high salaries that American Airlines, Transworld Airlines, and other big carriers paid. Dave Bankey made resistance to this notion the cornerstone of ALPA's wage policy. ALPA had always insisted on the principle that pilots of every airline, big or little, deserved the same pay for flying the same equipment. The smaller airlines never reconciled themselves to this idea, and from their beginning in the 1940s, the new feeders paid substandard wages, at least until ALPA began to organize their pilots in the 1950s. As a rule, the first ALPA contracts with the regionals were quite moderate. ALPA President Clancy Sayan was a patient negotiator who was always willing to bargain. For first contracts with the regional airlines, Sayan was willing to accept inferior salary scales to win recognition of ALPA as the bargaining agent. He would be back later for better salaries. Frank Hulse knew this, but he had other ideas. Harry Sussmill, Master Executive Council Chairman at the beginning of the strike, recalls that the airline's president wanted the strike, having engineered the circumstances that ultimately led to it. Nobody will ever know the full cost of the Southern Airways strike of 1960. It was awfully high. ALPA spent over $2 million, or over $17.5 million today. The airline spent much more and was technically bankrupt at one point during the strike. The federal government contributed nearly $10 million in direct subsidies to Southern Airways during the strike. A substantial percentage of this huge bailout using taxpayer dollars went directly to support strike-breaking. But how do we measure the cost of the strike in human terms? How can you put an honest price tag on the anguish of seeing a less qualified pilot take your job, of two years of hassles and fistfights and quarrels with local airport authorities over picketing rights, of having to make speeches to hostile audiences in the Deep South? The South in 1960 was not sympathetic to strikers. Imagine what it must have been like trying to explain the strike to the Chamber of Commerce in Greenville, Mississippi. In the South, Whipped up by propaganda, many people came to believe that labor unions were communism's secret weapon to subvert America, 
even though there were no labor unions in the Soviet Union, and the American labor movement had long since gotten rid of its own communist elements. Frank Hulse was more than willing to capitalize on this kind of antipathy toward labor unions. The unionization of his pilots in 1951, only two years after he founded the airline, shocked him. Frank Hulse got a certificate to operate an airline from the government in late World War II, but he did nothing with it until 1949. Paying practically nothing at first, he leveraged the surplus of pilots to pay low wages. But several pilots, who had worked previously at American Airlines, began talking about forming a union, got an election, and voted for ALPA. All of these pilots were later fired, as Hulse felt double-crossed. During the mid-1950s, relations between the pilot group and the airline's management were decidedly cool, and salary scales lagged considerably behind the national average. ALPA's policy of raising pay rates at one airline at a time worked less well at the regionals than at the majors because although the majors received some government subsidies during the 1950s, the regionals were almost totally dependent on federal dollars. In that era of tight economic regulation, an airline's overall operating costs were closely scrutinized by the Civil Aeronautics Board. Airline management, particularly at the regionals, had to regularly ask the federal government for bailouts. This provided them with an argument for low wages, which most pilots bought. In the event of extraordinary costs, they might have to submit to what was called crisis supervision, which could mean pilot layoffs. The Civil Aeronautics Board's goal was to make the regional airline industry financially viable, but that came very slowly. Optimistic assessments of the eventual profitability of regional airline services had pretty well stopped by the mid-1950s. Adding to their poor economic performance was the aging of the DC-3, still the standard aircraft at most regional airlines. The regionals had equipped themselves with cheap cast-off DC-3s from the majors in the late 1940s and early 1950s. By the mid-1950s, they were wearing out, and obviously the regionals would soon have to start replacing them with modern equipment like the Martin and Convair twin-engine aircraft. That was going to require heavy financial outlays. The bankers insisted that regional airlines cut cost and get their balance sheets in order before underwriting large loans for new equipment. ALPA's wage policy at the majors, which already operated the new equipment the regionals must soon acquire, would make pilot compensation an even larger expense if ALPA could force the regionals to pay comparable scales. That, in a nutshell, was why the regionals began resisting ALPA's wage demands so strenuously in the late 1950s and why a nasty strike at one of them was inevitable. From ALPA's point of view, pilot productivity was going to increase significantly once the DC-3 was phased out, but the time to start breaking the regionals 
to the harness of contemporary wage policy was before the new equipment arrived. The strategy of the famous wage policy guidelines adopted by the 1956 convention was to proceed gradually and peacefully. On the other side, from the regional airlines' point of view, the time to break ALPA was now, while the DC-3 was still in service, and there was an abundance of pilots holding air transport ratings for it. To wait another year or two, until after the new equipment began arriving, would put ALPA in a commanding position and make strike-breaking impossible since ALPA would command the loyalty of the only pilots capable of flying the DC-3 on short notice. Although a conspiracy is difficult to prove, every pilot at Southern Airways believed that the regional airlines did conspire to force a strike somewhere, simply because it was now or never. In addition, the regionals reasoned that ALPA was so embroiled in the nasty dispute with the Flight Engineers International Association that it would not be able to support a local strike at a small carrier effectively. Clancy Sayan tried to avoid trouble by insisting that regional pilot groups seek only modest wage increases. Sayan believed it was far better to concentrate on work rules rather than wages. Higher dollar amounts could come later, he reasoned, once new equipment was in operation. For now, the smart thing to do was to get regionals to use the method of pay computation, which was already in use by most of the major airlines. Southern Airways, like all the regionals, still used old-fashioned methods of pay computation. Against this attempt to modernize the method of pilot compensation, the regional airlines closed ranks, presenting pilots with a take-it-or-leave-it package and bringing in an attorney whose specialty was breaking labor unions to handle negotiations. The opinion of Clancy Sayan and of the executive committee was that ALPA was being given an ultimatum by the Regional Carriers Association. ALPA's leadership suspected a strike at one of the regional carriers was unavoidable, and the association would be better off if the strike came at Southern Airways, because the pilot group was very nearly unanimous. For nearly a year, from July 30, 1959, when the agreement with Southern Airways pilots came up for renewal, until June 5, 1960, when the strike began, the pilots were in almost constant negotiation and mediation, always hitting a brick wall. Hulse apparently believed that when push came to shove, his pilots would not walk out. He was also exploring the possibility of hiring scab replacements. When the pilots finally notified the company that they had taken enough abuse and were therefore left with no alternative but to withdraw from service, as it was phrased in the Railway Labor Act, the airline's management moved immediately to hire replacement pilots. The new hires thought the strike would be short. In fact, the first picketers turned out in a festive mood, and the temporary strike headquarters in Memphis's Holiday Inn looked like a cocktail party. 
The typical Southern Airways pilot had not been involved in day-to-day negotiations over the last year and had no idea how intractable management had become. The pilot leadership group was under no illusions, however. Furthermore, the ALPA negotiating team was in temporary disarray owing to the untimely death of Jim Pashkoff, the staff negotiator Sayan had assigned full-time to the Southern Airways case. Pashkoff, in addition to being an attorney, was also a naval aviator. He was killed while flying a reserve training mission when negotiations were at a critical point. The strikers began to realize that they were in for a long struggle when two base chief pilots resigned from the airline, refusing to be party to Southern Airways and Hulse's demands to end seniority and to have the right to discipline leaders of the strike. But, at the same time, the pilots of Southeast Airlines, a small intrastate carrier in Tennessee, were about to be unemployed. Southeast was folding because the Civil Aeronautics Board had refused to certify its routes and awarded them instead to Southern Airways. Its 24 pilots, all qualified to fly DC-3s, were available. Hulse believed they would go to work for him immediately, as did Everett Martin, Southern Airways' personnel director, who warned the striking pilots that he could replace them in a month. With these unemployed pilots as his ace in the hole, Hulse was extraordinarily uncooperative. The chairman of the Memphis Council, Jim Harper, had taken care to contact the Southeast pilots Hulse was counting on. Although they needed jobs badly, most of them refused to scab. Only a few of them crossed Alpa's picket lines to apply for jobs. Hulse began running advertisements in trade journals, offering employment to qualified DC-3 pilots aged 28 to 50. A fair number of men who had been fired for cause from other airlines began showing up in Southern Airways' cockpits. Hulse was offering the equivalent of sweatshop wages, but pilot employment opportunities were so limited that he could get away with it. The Federal Aviation Agency, which was the successor to the Commerce Department's Civil Aeronautics Administration, bent every rule in the book to help him. The new agency's administrator was notoriously anti-pilot and pro-management, and thus aided Hulse's attempt to break ALPA. The most celebrated of FAA's many instances of neglect involved a scab named Houlihan, who had somehow landed an ATP job with only a private license and no instrument rating. As the strike deepened, the striking pilots began setting up their own files on the scabs, doing the job that the FAA refused to do, carefully checking the scabs' backgrounds with an eye to discrediting their competence. A contact in the FAA records section checked on Houlihan and found that he held only a private license. By the time United Press International's Robert Serling broke the story, Houlihan was a captain. It created a major stink, 
and Houlihan was promptly fired. But his flying for several months as captain was an indictment on both the airline and the FAA. The Southern Airways strike was simply too complex at all levels. In Memphis, Atlanta, Washington, and Chicago, in the legal system, in the stock market, and of course, ultimately, in politics, for any historian to do it justice. In some ways, it was a repeat of the National Airlines strike of 1948, with the same techniques of towing banners that read Don't Fly Southern, fights between scabs and strikers at the airports, minor vandalism to Southern Airways' property, and Alpa and the airlines suing each other. But in some respects, the strike was much harder because it went on so much longer. For example, although there were a few brief fisticuffs during the National Airlines strike, there was actually gunfire during the Southern Airways strike when Delta Airlines pilot George Metz was wounded by a shotgun-toting scab while assisting striking pilots. Next time on Flying the Line, the striking pilots of Southern Airways resort to unorthodox tactics, including starting their own airline to win public support, and the federal government intervenes. Thank you for listening. This has been part one of chapter 18 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2020. All rights reserved.